Good afternoon and welcome to Queering the Air. My name is Jacob Gamble and I'm so excited to be taking you through your next hour here on 3CR 855 AM 
or perhaps you're listening online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. That opening track was called Immaterial by the late, uh, the great Sophie, a trans icon. Rest in peace. And I want to begin by acknowledging today that we are broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I want to pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners who are tuning in to the program today. And as you may know, this week was Reconciliation Week uh, with the theme of Be Brave and Make Change. So a special shout out to all of the amazing Indigenous advocates out there who are being brave and making that change. Now, we've got a really exciting lineup for you this afternoon. Um, I've got three incredible um, and very different segments, actually. So we're going to start off, uh, we've got a new presenter on board, the Queering the Air team. So it's it's not just going to be me all by myself in the studio. My very good friend um, and a very talented presenter, Riley Galloway, spoke with Danielle Goda, who is a queer artist, actor, and producer, and they had a conversation about the upcoming works of the Dirty Pennies Theatre Project. So that'll be our first segment on the show today. Later on, we're going to be touching base about a new inquiry that was announced by the New South Wales government into hate crimes against the LGBTQIA plus community um, between 1970 and 2010. So earlier this week, I spoke with Nick Stewart, who is a partner at Dowson Turco Lawyers, all about the inquiry and what it means uh, for, for LGBTQIA plus victims, and also for the relationship between police and the queer community in general. And lastly, uh, I bring you a very special sit-down interview with two drag performers, Timberlina and Foxy Foe both of whom are from the humble town of Newcastle. And we're going to be speaking about the powers of regional drag in bringing people together, um, and especially for those regional queer kids who need a bit of a light uh, in their lives. And while we're on the topic of uh, regional stuff and, uh, and Newcastle, I also need to acknowledge that today we're joined by a couple of very special guests observing in the studio. Um, shout out to, to mum and dad for coming along and uh, seeing the program in Witness. Mum was really enjoying that first track by Sophie. So maybe um, Sophie's got a new fan by, uh, by the looks of it. We're going to hop now to some community service announcements and then we'll be right back after this. CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation providing health and support services in Melbourne. In late 2021, CoHealth facilitated a workshop for women from diverse cultural backgrounds on effective communication skills for social and professional settings. Positive outcomes for workshop participants were collaborative discussions in safe spaces and onward access to support services. To learn more about our services and programs, visit cohealth.org.au. CoHealth is a 3CR supporter. Oh, 
throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. Welcome back. Queering the air here on 3CR Radical Radio, 855am on the dial. Um, So you may have heard a familiar voice in that community service announcement, a bit of radio inception, if you will. And I just wanted to remind our listeners that June is the month of Radiothon, which is our big annual fundraiser in which we're trying to raise a quarter of a million dollars to keep our station going. So I'll be speaking a bit more on that later. But if you have some coins to spare, please, please, please head to our website, 3cr.org.au, and you can click uh, the donate button. I think it's forward slash donate. Any amount of money, big or small, really does go a long way to keeping our voices on the air um, and keeping up with some really cool, amazing content that 3CR does. So a bit more on that later, but first we're going to hop in now to an interview conducted by Riley Galloway. Daniel Goda is a queer artist, actor and performer based in Melbourne. And back in 2017, she and her partner Amy co-founded the Dirty Pennies Theatre Project. Riley Galloway spoke with her about the project and her upcoming production, A Queer Psychological Thriller, and also about her ambitions as an artist. Danielle, you've been based in Melbourne for quite a few years now. Whereabouts are you from and what was growing up there like? I am actually from Perth, which is not something I disclose very often, purely because um, it's not really the art capital of the country. And like growing up queer in Perth was really difficult. So I moved to Melbourne at 17. And like when I finished high school, I was like, I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Yeah, I feel very at ease in Melbourne, very held and safe and within my community and with the right people that reflect me back at me. Moving cities is no small feat and 17 is an incredibly young age to take that on, to leave everything behind, to choose a new path for yourself. Can you tell me a bit about that decision firstly? And secondly, are you happy that you picked Melbourne? It's really weird to say, but I never thought I could get out of Perth. And it's not like I'm like trying to move to New York or something, but I never had the thought where I was like, you can leave this city. Like, I just was like, I don't know how I will ever leave this town. So when I was in year 12, I had a friend at the time who was like, I'm moving to Melbourne. Do you want to come? And I was like, yes. Like literally, if I don't do it now, I never will. And I always think about that as such a pivotal moment in like really shaping who I am today because had I not left Perth, I would be a very different person. And I think it's, yeah, it's quite a scary thought when you think about it. So it was really arbitrary, but I was really blessed that it was Melbourne because it's just like such a progressive, open artistic city where like 
if you really lean into it, it can be such a wonderful city to live. And like, I'm in London right now and I love London, but at the same time, I'm also like, Melbourne's pretty great. You describe yourself as a multidisciplinary artist, one of those disciplines being acting. Is that something that you connected with and aspired towards growing up? And what has that journey been like for you here in Melbourne? I think a lot of children growing up who like love to make believe and love to play and make up stories, I think it's very common for a child to say that they want to be an actor. But I really wanted to be an actor and I would say that that is something now as a 27-year-old that I'm coming to terms with. Like, It's okay that I'm not acting a lot or in the way that I thought I was going to be. And I think there's so much that like I have opened myself up to that is not a sad thing that I don't act in the way that I wanted to. But I think growing up, it was like all I had really was the arts and like we just had drama. Like I didn't go to a very good school. And so, and like the school, like just valued sport and which I think is very indicative of this country in its psychology and where it values certain things. But like I went to acting school in Melbourne and even then like I was enjoying telling stories and becoming other people and finding empathy and compassion to other people through playing other roles. But it wasn't until I went to art school that I was really able to like understand what artistically motivates me and what I'm artistically interested in and why and and being allowed that space to actually like fall on your like on your bloody butt you know like make mistakes and get embarrassed and and learn from that um it was a really freeing few years for me going to art school and at the same time I was like I never anticipated going to art school I never even anticipated like leaving Perth so everything for me has kind of been just like all these opportunities that come my way I've just been like yeah I'll do it absolutely like where's that going to lead me to next You and your partner, Amy, started the Dirty Pennies Theatre Project in 2017. Tell me a bit about that and how that came about. Like getting into acting school, that's really, really difficult. And then, you know, you get in. But when you finish acting school, it's kind of like, well, at least for me, I was like, there are no opportunities, you know, like, and also the stories that I'm interested in telling or the voices that I want to represent don't really have a platform so when my partner and I finished acting school we were like well let's make a theatre company because that way we're empowering ourselves and we're empowering other artists who just want to be doing the work because the opportunities are so far and few between so I think for us it was yeah again it was just so freeing to create that space for us and for other queer artists you know we really want to create space for youth as well like like queer, non-binary people, like to really access their artistic side and be able to express themselves. Because I know for me at least, like so much of that was just lacking from my childhood, like institutionally, within the home, like they're just, I think art is just so important for a growing kid. You know, I really want to create a program for youth to be able to express themselves. What has Dirty Pennies been working on lately? Yeah, so we had a show in November at Theatre Works, which was called Pram Kicker. Um, And we've got a new show coming up that she's written. Um, I think that'll be in October. And it's called Menace Ridge. And it is about a queer couple. And it's like a genre heightened thriller, which I think, first of all, 
that you don't really see that genre told in theatre. But I don't think the queers have many thrillers out there, you know, like it's not a genre that we're very, uh, what's the word, like we're not really exposed to very much. So um, she, both of us love thriller. So we were like, I think actually this might be the perfect vehicle to tell a heightened story that involve elements of like the supernatural or um, whatever. But I think it is a really great vehicle for us to be like, so it's about a couple uh, that go on a camping trip and everything goes wrong. Like there's like menacing men leering in the woods at the campsite and, you know, like there's a like a really wild, dangerous animal on the loose. But I think it comes down to like what it's like being a queer person trying to partake in like heteronormative rituals that aren't entirely equipped for the queer experience, you know? It's like all the myriad masks and, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like adaptations that you have to do as a queer person, depending on the context and the space you're in. Like, you know, I think instinctually queer people know when they're unsafe, even if it's like on a really subtle, minute scale, it's like, okay, well, this is how I have to shift in this context. This is how I need to make myself feel a bit more safe. Um, I, I don't know if that's what your experience is like, but certainly that is a huge thing for me and for Amy. And and maybe that ties into the fact that I identify as a woman and I grew up in a really unsafe city, but I think we're all pretty primed to just adapt to our surroundings. And so it's pretty much about that and how this couple have to assimilate to the space they're in in order to survive, which I'm really, really excited about. I imagine that putting on a show is a massive undertaking. Tell me a bit about the collaboration behind this upcoming show. We doing it in partnership with the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, which is a fantastic organisation um, on Lonsdale Street in the CBD. And they're just this brilliant organisation that support female non-binary artists. You know, they've got studios there, workshop spaces. They've got like a, a local artist shop. Um, they, don't, they don't entirely have a space for theatre, but that is something that they're... Um, trying to lean more into and I think that also poses a really wonderful creative provocation for us as theatre makers trying to make theatre in a space that isn't entirely made for theatre you know like rather than viewing that as a challenge it's more like oh but how can we actually like make the set malleable to the space that we're in and it's gonna it's gonna be wild I'm very excited about it. You've been working in the arts for many years now what are some of the biggest challenges you come across? Uh, oh, gosh, I don't know. There's a two-pronged thing for me. One of them is that this country does not value the arts. I mean, we do, but not in the same way that we value sport, not in the same way that we value mining. And so, I mean, that is completely epitomised in the fact that we don't have a national policy for arts. I uh, I think, like, a cultural policy, and I think we just don't have the same amount of funding, full stop, you know, and that is really, really difficult. I think it also, you know, means that there are little pockets of independent artists that are doing really fantastic work, you know, really having the freedom to not be bound by institutional, like, parties that they have to abide by. But I th the funding is just really, really hard. And we've seen that in all the university cuts in the funding like the Monash theatre program 
and the musical theatre program that got cut and that was just like a huge grief to the community. You know, like when there is funding issues, arts is the first thing to go. So I think that is really, really limited. You mentioned earlier your vision for a youth program branch of Dirty Pennies. What do you think this could uh, potentially look like? I think that is something that we're really working towards at the moment, like having an actual youth program. I think at the moment we're thinking like just a writing program and then being able to like showcase that and then hopefully even printing it into like a magazine or like creating its own sort of publication because you want to be able to give kids a tangible thing that can be like, I participated in this writer's collective for like, you know, a month or whatever it is and be like, this is like a publication that I have now been published in and that is something that they can add to their CV and that is something that can give, just can add and armour them up to be able to do the next thing in their career trajectories because I think that is just, would be so empowering to be able to do that. I'm currently doing my master's at the moment in arts and cultural management, so I'm not sure where that's going to lead me either, but I'm hoping that in my studies and in working with other artists who have different skills, different opinions, belief sets, can, like, I just want to be able to create space for other artists to be able to do what they want to do. Um, And I don't know what that looks like yet. I don't know what that is, but... I really look forward to finding it out. You're on 3CR, Queering the Air, and that was a conversation for, uh, between Riley Galloway talking with artist, actor, and producer Danielle Goda. Um, and I hope you enjoyed. If you are into this sort of content and you like to support your local community, independent media organization uh, i am gonna tout it again it is our radiothon month at the moment so please hop on the website at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate um, and if you have some spare money to give um, it would really be appreciated and go a long way so yeah that was riley speaking with danielle goda Up next, we're going to be chatting about something a little more heavy. So this next segment is about the New South Wales inquiry into LGBTQIA plus hate crimes. And just a trigger warning to all of our viewers, um, listeners, sorry, this, this next segment contains mentions of violence, of murder and of police brutality. So if this is something that uh, may cause some harm, please tune back in in about 15 minutes time. All right, you're on 3CR Queering the Air, um, and this is our next interview. We're going to be talking about a New South Wales inquiry that was announced in April this year that will investigate 88 unsolved murders committed against LGBTQIA plus people between 1970 and 2010. Led by the Supreme Court judge, John Sakar, the inquiry comes as a result of parliamentary committee recommendations and years of advocacy uh, from the work of the LGBT community. And joining us now is Nick Stewart, who is a partner at Dowson Turco Law, and he's been quite involved in getting this inquiry off the ground. Nick, thanks for joining us this morning. 
Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us a bit more about the inquiry um, and maybe give us a bit of background as to why it's such a significant move. Sure. Uh, look, the inquiry followed two parliamentary inquiries in New South Wales. Um, which looked at the history of LGBTIQ plus um, bashings and hate crimes, including murders. Um, I led the campaign for those inquiries because it was really important to get on the public record um, the targeting and harassment and bias um, within the New South Wales community towards LGBTIQ plus people. Um, and the fact that many murders of gay men and trans people had not been investigated properly or killers were simply just um, walking around with impunity. The two parliamentary inquiries then led to um, a further campaign for a judicial commission of inquiry, which is an independent inquiry led by a judge separate to parliament, and that's what the Premier of New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet, announced earlier this year. Um, And like you said, it is looking at... um, 88 deaths of gay men or transgender people identified by the New South Wales Police Force in their Parabell investigation. Um, But about 23, and don't quote me, but about 23 of those um, are solved, in very commas, Um, but um, many remain unsolved. And even those that have been solved, we say, probably need a review because... um, as many people know, Scott Johnson um, in New South Wales was found at the bottom of Manly Cliffs and his death was, in inverted commas, solved when police ruled it, off, ruled it out as a suicide. Um, and it was only after three coronary inquests that it was actually discovered that he was murdered um, and subsequently a person has been prosecuted for his death and sent to jail. Mm, it was definitely a really grim case and I'm wondering if you can shed some light on sort of what was the general nature uh, of these crimes that are being investigated at the moment. Sure well look they all generally involve the targeting of gay men or transgender people because we were seen as vulnerable we were seen as people who wouldn't fight back. Um, Many deaths in New South Wales were um, committed or murders were committed on the cliffs of our coastline, so um, around Bondi and Marks Park, there are several murders of gay men um, that have not been resolved um, and are cold cases effectively, where um, men have been bashed on the cliffs and thrown off the cliffs to their death. Um, One particular death involved John Russell, um, who was found at the base of a cliff cliff and um, in his hand he was holding um, hair from what we believe to be a perpetrator. Um, unfortunately that that exhibit, that hair has gone missing, um, making it very hard for police to effectively investigate. Um, his death was a bit, initially ruled as um, a suicide or an accidental you know, he fell off kind of thing, um, but we know that he was murdered. Um, you know, there, there are so many um, similar situations around Bondi, but there's also bashings in public toilets, um, home invasions, um, bashings in Centennial Park and murders in Centennial Park. It's a really gruesome um, project um, to look back into, 
um, but we believe that we can't really have truth and healing until we um, go back to our past and look at why gay men and transgender people particularly, as well as lesbians, were targeted for bashings and murders. Mm, it's it's such a heart-wrenching uh, thing to, to think about, and I imagine it would take quite an emotional toll trying to look into these cases, many of which occurred three to four decades ago. What are some of the challenges of prosecuting someone after such an extended period of time? Yeah, good question. I just think, um, you know, um, historical murders are always hard. Cold cases are always hard because witnesses who may have been around um, at the time may no, no longer be around. Um, people's memories fade over time. Um, you know, you have to go back and look at a snapshot in time and identify who was around, what the um, deceased was doing at the time. They can't talk. Um, their family members may not be around to explain why they were, um, you know, in Bondi or at a cliff. Um, one particular de- death um, involved a French man who went missing and was not reported missing for about five years. Um, and, you know, I just think... Um, it's so hard in those circumstances. It's so hard to go back and find evidence. But we saw with the Scott Johnson investigation that with resources, you can actually identify suspects. Um, and a lot of money and resources went into investigating or reinvestigating Scott Johnson's death, and that led to the prosecution of an accused person. So I think it can be done, but it requires resources and it requires dedication and determination. Mm, certainly many challenges, as you, you mentioned, just getting evidence and, and eyewitness accounts. Uh, but looking forwards, as you said, um, with resources and, and dedication, we can achieve justice. And I want to ask you, what does justice look like for the victims and their loved ones and also the LGBTQIA plus community at large? Mm, justice is a funny word. You know, um, I'm not sure we'll ever get justice. To me, justice is about holding people accountable for their actions. Um, But I think for the LGBT community, it's a bit more than that because we may not identify all of the perpetrators. But therefore, to me, justice would look like um, our government acknowledging the wrongs of the past, doing everything it can to identify killers and identify people who committed hate crimes towards us and recognising the role of society, the role of government, the role of the health system, the role of the police, the role of the judicial system, um, you know, the role of the AIDS pandemic pandemic, and the Grim Reaper um, advertisements that were broadcast on television sets in the 80s and 90s. What, how did they, all those factors play into this kind of attitude towards the LGBTIQ plus community? Mm, there's there's so much harmful uh, media and attitudes that existed back then. I certainly feel very fortunate uh, to exist now in a time that's much more inclusive and accepting. Uh, and the, the Parliamentary Committee uh, in 2018 that you mentioned before found that the New South Wales police were quite indifferent to gay hate crimes in the 80s and 90s. But then there was a separate investigation, um, Strike Force Parabell, which you also mentioned before in, in 2013, that concluded it was almost impossible to identify a gay hate bias among cops 
at the time. So what are your thoughts on the role police have played historically in investigating gay and trans hate crimes? Mm. Look, I think um, it's obvious to me that there was bias towards many of the investigations. Um, you know, ruling suicide in circumstances where there's probably clear evidence of at least manslaughter or murder, I think points to um, bias. But the Parabell Strike Force also didn't reinvestigate. It was a review. It basically looked on the papers rather than re-interviewing witnesses or actually taking a whole fresh view of um, evidence. In other words, I think it's really hard to for the police force to determine whether there was bias or not based on a review. Um, you'd actually have to get back into the cases and operators if you're reinvesting in a cold case to ascertain whether there was bias. And I think if that was done, and I think that will be done through this Judicial Commission of Inquiry, um, maybe there will be revelations of actual bias in investigations. You know, we had a newsreader in, in New South Wales, John Russell, um, who went missing off Monks Park. Um, his keys were found close by, not by police, but by his friends. Um, you know, he was just left. There was no investigation, and his mum wrote repeatedly to the police force asking for an investigation. Her letters were ignored. It was only when there was a straight police officer who discovered um, John's case in a corner um, that he petitioned the coroner for a, a full-on inquiry who then found that he was killed. So, you know, there's there's a lot to look into here. Absolutely. And I think the police has been a really divisive topic uh, in the LGBTQIA plus community, both historically um, and in contemporary times. Many folks don't really feel safe with police attending things like Pride events. Um, But then there's also the other side of the coin, which is that a lot of people are asserting queer um, and trans members of the police force have the same right as everyone else to be included. So do you think that police still have a place uh, in contemporary pride movements? And if so, how can police build a better relationship with the LGBTQIA plus community? Sure. Look, I acknowledge um, the view that um, the view from some people and some groups that police don't have a role in pride and Mardi Gras. Um, but my view is that they do. And the reason I say that is because I am an optimist. Um, I think that we can only have change by working with law enforcement. Um, as you say, there are members of our community now enrolling to become police officers and it, the police force is slowly, very slowly becoming representative of us. Um, I think in New South Wales, I think we've affected enormous change over the last 10 years in terms of the relationship of the police and the community. Um, the police have said sorry. The commissioner has said sorry for um, what he believes is maybe a lack of um, respect for and attitude towards the LGBT community when investigating crimes against us. Um, you know, this parable was a good thing. I don't think it went far enough, but it was still a good thing. Um I think what we need is really clear messaging from the New South Wales Police Force is that they will adopt language and policies and attitudes that include us and protect us because they are there to protect everyone, not just straight people.
Mm, I, I couldn't agree more. And I guess on a broader sense, what are your hopes um, for how the, the legal system can better serve our community moving forwards? Look, my hope is that there's just more funding within law enforcement for units that are designed um, to understand and work with our communities. Um, in New South Wales, we have these gamers being liaison officers. They're a fantastic program, but we need more of them. We need them to be in every station. We need them to actively work with the LGBT community to make them feel safe and comfortable. Um, and in Victoria Police, I think that is the same thing. You know, you need police forces to actually identify us as a large part of the population that's vulnerable and deserving of protection. Um, but that also means understanding us, you know, really doing research and understanding who we are and how we behave and how we live our lives. Mm, and I think um, you mentioned before as well, just diversifying the police force so it is representative of the population, right? Totally, totally. And look, women are more than 50% of the population. So let's have more women in the police force. Let's have more women leading police forces. Um, mm. And, you know, we all know that women have generally been our saviours. They've been our friends and our supporters in our lives. Um, they're more understanding of gay men and trans people generally. Um, but also we need more LGBTIQ plus people in the police force, um, more First Nations people and so on. It, it just means diversity and representation. Mm, it's it's certainly a vision uh, worth pursuing. Well, Nick, that's all we have time for, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. It's been really special. Cool. My pleasure, Jacob. All the best, mate. Thank you. Welcome back to Queering the Air here on 3CR 855 AM. On the dial, I'm Jacob Gamble, your host, taking you through until four o'clock today. And that was a conversation I had with Nick Stewart from Dowson Turco Lawyers about the New South Wales inquiry into LGBTQIA plus hate crimes. Um, a very profound, um, but also a very dark topic. So if that causes some distress, please don't hesitate to call QLife, uh, Beyond Blue, Headspace. We'll put some numbers in our show notes today. Um, if you want to head on to the, the 3CR website, they'll all be there. We're going to jump to a quick community service announcement and we'll be right back after this. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Alrighty, so up next, we're going to be hearing an interview with two drag performers called Timberlina and Foxy Foe. And now, if you haven't heard of them, they're from a little regional city, well, not so little anymore, um, called Newcastle, which is about a two-hour drive north of Sydney. And I 
am admittedly a regional city kid myself, specifically from uh, this said city of Newcastle. And I remember growing up, there wasn't really a whole lot of a drag scene there. There was one kind of queer nightlife venue, but it actually closed down before I turned 18. So there wasn't a whole lot there for the LGBTQIA plus community. However, times have changed. Um, now there's a, a growing kind of underground uh, and probably actually emerging more into the mainstream drag scene happening there. And it's being led by these amazing performers, specifically Timberlina, who is the founder of Timber Productions, uh, which is a, a production agency for LGBTQIA plus performers. Anyway, I sat down with them and it was a really fun chat. So I hope you enjoy so we are joined by the wonderful Timberlina and Foxy Foe coming to you from Newcastle. Welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. So let's start off. How did you both get into drag and what inspired you to start? And let's start with Tim and then I'll ask Foxy to also answer that question. Okay, so I, how did I start in drag? It was by accident. I was visiting my sister in the US um, and we we're in a drag bar and I got pulled up on stage and it was a dance off moment. And obviously I'm so competitive, I had to win. So I just pulled out the splits. And by that, like when I say the splits, like my splits weren't as good as I can do the splits now. They were like still really bad. Um, and people started throwing money at me and I was like, I can make money from doing this. This is sick. And then came back to Australia and... I literally got really drunk at my parents' property and started emailing some bars in Newcastle saying, hey, can I start drag bingo? And then a month later, I was literally in a venue in Newcastle doing drag bingo to 90 people. And I guess the rest is history now. Like it's been a wild wind of like four and a half years. And Foxy, what about you? What started your drag journey? Uh, not quite as exciting as Tim's, but um, like a lot of people, I think these days, I started watching uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. And um, through that, I started going to uh, live shows, like live drag shows. It wasn't until I actually went to a live drag show down in Melbourne and I met my first, I guess you could say, AFAB or Bio Queen and was like, oh my God, like girls can do this like I knew about it in America I didn't know about it in Australia um and then kind of came home started practicing I said to Tim like because at that point they had um created a like a baby drag like a first time first time is kind of show and I was like yep I'm gonna do it and that was it once I got in I wasn't allowed to pull out and I just pretty much haven't stopped ever since and yeah just keep going and every time every opportunity I've just continued to say yes 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 and here we are so we've got a couple of seasoned uh, drag performers in our presence by the sounds of it. And as a former Novocastrian myself, I know that there wasn't really much of an LGBTQIA plus scene back when I was there. I mean, we had one gay club and it kind of closed down and then there was a few sort of events happening. But what was the queer scene like in Newcastle when both of you started out? Was there much of a drag scene there? No, there wasn't. So the G, um, which is now the Newey Hotel here, was the queer space. And I think six months into my career of doing drag, it closed down. So there was literally no queer bar in Newcastle. Um, and that's when I decided to start a show called Blush, um, which was our baby queen show or baby drag show. 
um, giving people the platform to get on stage and performing drag and give that safe space. And we moved around with that. And I guess that really kicked off what we see now in Newcastle. So it's, it's good to see Newcastle over the years grow, but there was literally nothing when I started. Um, people talk about drag mums and dads and I say I'm the drunk auntie, now sober auntie. <laughs> um, so I don't have a drag mum or anything like that. So I guess that sums it up pretty good how it was here. Like it wasn't, there was nothing when I started. Yeah, mm. I only had a space because Tim created a space for me to be able to, you know, do drag. Like that was the whole reason that I found my local community of drag is because of the spaces that Tim created for us. Amazing. I love this image of Timberlina as the drunk slash now newly sober auntie of Newcastle's drag scene. I love it. Yeah. And so it started out just as blush. And then I'm guessing did Timber Productions come next or was that kind of before? So Timber Productions came about because of blush. Um, I wanted to separate it from my own brand as Timberlina. Um, I needed to have a production company that then could produce other events and other shows and then take on that talent agency, um, which it's grown into now and just build a brand that wasn't just Timberlina because Timberlina was like then at that stage growing, I was growing my own brand and it was getting really big out West and still is heavily, massively big out West. Um and that's my biggest thing about my brand is that it's, we aren't all about like the city and all that kind of stuff. It's all about regional and reaching regional people. Um, and then so Blush happened and then Timber Productions came along and I could fit everything else underneath that that wasn't Timberlina, which has been a massive couple of years. I'm not going to lie. It's been really big. So the next event I think that came along would have been Timberlina's Drag Off, which is a massive drag comp here at that stage. Drag-off and and um. Uh, there was another night. Queetopia? Yeah, Queetopia. That's it. Queetopia, which was like a kind of smaller version. Yeah, like it was not just like, that was a step up from the baby drag show. It was, we got other performers to come in. And so, yeah, it's been pretty exciting, to be honest, to be able to have Newcastle accept it, I guess, as well. Mm. Absolutely. And what have been some of the highlights for you, Foxy, as a member of the talent agency? Um, I mean, I started off with a bang winning Timberlina's first drag off to be able to get into Timber, Timber Productions because at that stage that was like part of the prize is that you then got to um, kind of do that. And then through that I have learnt how to host and co-host and build confidence in myself like talking on a microphone used to be one of the scariest things uh like school like speeches I hated it I never did anything like that now and Tim can vouch this I don't shut up um it's just like I can't stop now I love it so much like I'm so uh I'm confident enough like I could walk into a room and someone said I need you to host and there's 20 people here and entertain them go and I'd be like no worries I can do that where that would have been so scary previously so I think just getting the opportunity to be able to go out and entertain people to show what I can do to prove that you know drag for me is something that I want to do and further in my life it's not just like a you know get up on stage perform and that's all I'm good for no I really want to host I want to like do more with it not just be a little dancing queen on the stage at a club 
Yeah, absolutely. Those people, that's great if that's what you want to do. But I, I want all the opportunities and I'm working my way towards it. She's a well-rounded performer is what I'm hearing from, from that sentiment. And it, it sounds like it's had quite a profound effect on you, not only professionally, but also personally as well. And I'm curious, what has the effect been on the community in Newcastle? Have you noticed any shifts in attitude towards the queer and trans community? For me to answer that question, yeah, 100%. If you went back five years ago now to see a drag performer in, as we like to call them, a straight bar, you would never see that in a city like Newcastle. And I guess for me, one of my biggest things is to break down that barrier to create equality is to go into queer, well, not queer spaces, but straight spaces, that hetero space, and turn them queer for a night. Um, to put us in front of those audiences that will never go to a queer bar, why, should, why shouldn't we just put ourselves in front of them? And that's my biggest thing is that, like, if I can educate people in the way that I do my shows, it, that's the best way to it. Go straight to them. Go to the straight to the people. And I love that it's saying straight. <laughs> um, straight to those people that need to be educated um, and educate them in a way that, um, one, I do it in a comedic way with my shows. So it's like they don't realise they're getting educated, but they are. Um, and then they start to ask those questions. And then I can say that I can go into any any conversation with an open heart, open book, and I will talk to people. Like, for example, yesterday I was at a bar and these straight guys were just asking all these questions. They're like, you're so cool, like, because I was so open and just vulnerable with them. And I think that's what we need to be is like, and now they will understand when they're meeting other queer people or trans people, they'll actually have kind of that education behind what they should be saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. Like um, the pe- people in Newcastle, like you can always see us like at, on a weekly basis, there's someone walking around Newcastle these days, like, which is an incredible thing to have. So even if it's just seeing someone seeing us walking down the street going, oh, I wonder where they're going. And then they start to look it up or something like that. We find that we're having br- uh, brand new people and brand new audiences all the time that want to come and want to support and want to learn more about it. Um, and they're just like people I think these days are getting just more and more open-minded. Like I, like we both host bingo in a shopping center food area at 6 PM on a Wednesday and there's children and all sorts of people coming and walking past and most people just stand there, watch, have a laugh and stay or keep walking if it's not quite their thing. And it's, it's just something new, something different, bringing drag into the suburbs instead of always being in the city as well and more accessible for all those people that can't always make it into town, even though like Newcastle is still really small. People who live 20, 40 minutes away from the city don't want to travel all that way just for a queer safe space where now we're bringing it to those areas that are that little bit further out. Yeah, I love this idea of decentralizing drag and that it doesn't always have to be in those small hubs within the city. And I think, Tim, you touched on before going to regional towns such as out west. I know you've got quite a presence in Dubbo, for example. How important do you think visibility and community is for LGBTQIA plus people in those regional areas? Um, I just got goosebumps because I'm so passionate about this. Um, so I'm from a regional town. Um, I grew up in a small country town called Golgong in the central west of New South Wales. And for me growing up out there, there was nothing. You didn't see anything. Um, 
for example, I had to fight to play netball out there. That was my sport. That's what I wanted to do. Um, my neighbor taught me how to dance. Like it was very small. Um, so for me, when I started drag, it was like a no brainer that I had to take it to regional New South Wales. For me, I find a lot of people just stop um, once they hit to the great dividing range and they won't go past that because they're scared of what people are going to think of them. I can tell you country folk love it the most. For me, if I'm walking down the street now in, say, Mudgy, people will either come up and run up and ask for a photo or they'll swap to the other side of the road. And for me, that's a win because I made an effect on that town and they either love it or they hate it. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to love it because I'm not going anywhere. And for me, if a kid sees me on a poster and questions their parents about what that is, who it is, hopefully their parents will be smart enough to educate their children. If not, the kids are going to see me on the street anyway. It doesn't really matter. But it's so important because there could be somebody that's 25 and still working out who they are um, and they might come to a show and then they can come and have that conversation with me. It, It creates that safe space. There's other queer people that come to these shows. So I guess for me, it's another way to educate people as well because the country folk is still out there and they want to learn as well. And I have so many middle-aged white women coming in and asking questions. So (laughs) um, it's a great way to educate people as well. And it fills my heart. Like this weekend, 90% of my shows are in the central west of New South Wales. So it's kind of cool. And I'm spread out everywhere. Like I go to Tamworth and then I'm in Mudgee and then I'm in Dubbo and then I'm in Orange. So it's kind of like I'm hitting all the places out west. It's really fun. Sensational. I love this image of you on a country road, just, you know, approached by middle-aged white women. That really warms my heart. (laughs) It's actually so fun. I love it. And Foxy, same question for you. How important do you think visibility and community is for queer people living in regional areas and regional cities, including Newcastle? I mean, I've been really lucky to be able to go a couple of times out to like Dubbo and other places where Tim does bring safe spaces for people. I think it's important because queer people shouldn't have to feel that to be accepted and to be themselves, they have to move to a capital city. You know, the cost of living out there is like queer people don't always have the best of uh, like job availabilities or incomes and things like that. Like it's hard for those people to be like living in such expensive areas, like, and they might want to stay where they are. Like they've got good friends, they've got good family. There's other ish, like reasons of why they want to stay or need to stay where they are. There's no reason why they can't have somewhere to go or have an event to be themselves or like Tim said if there's someone that's still figuring out who they are like everyone shouldn't have to travel to a capital city just to get that thing to feel that need that's inside of you of like seeing people like you it's they shouldn't have to travel so far just to do that I mean we're lucky because of like social media and like tv like there's all sorts of things but being up close in the flesh with someone else that understands what you're going through or even if you want to forget that for a night and just be in company with like people that are an ally or supportive or something like there's just a comforting feeling about having that come to you rather than you have to chase it. Mm, It's so special. I think having, as you said, people not in cities going out and creating those spaces because you are totally right. You shouldn't have to come and live in an expensive city to find uh, a sense of comfort and identity in yourself. 
it sucks. Like so many um, things for like trans people, like medications, all sorts of other things are like so hard to like access. They're also really expensive because they're not always covered by Medicare as well. Like throw that into living in some of the most expensive places in the world. Like Australia is like Sydney and all that is like ridiculous. Like, and they don't might not want to do that. They're still country folk at heart, like still want to live in that regional area. They don't all have to like want to, yeah, live in the city and live in the hustle and bustle, but like they shouldn't, yeah, have to chase those safe, safe spaces and safe people as well. Absolutely. What are you most excited about Timber Productions in the future? And let's start with Tim. Oh, I really want to grow the business. I want to take it to more regional and remote locations um, around Australia um, that starve for that community feel and creating safe spaces around Australia in regional places, not just the city. I feel like the cities are a bit saturated at the moment. We need to spread our wings a little bit more and take it everywhere else. And that's what Timber Productions is for. Love it. And Foxy, what are you most excited about? excited to be a part of the journey like I'm excited to see different places like I'd only ever been where concrete was I didn't know red dirt for like the life of me and now uh, I don't know where I'm going but I'm gonna be there so um it's yeah get my little city city heart like I've lived in apartments since I was like eight I don't remember like gardens and all that kind of stuff and here I am going out into the country so I'm just happy to be along for the ride Foxy's in the passenger seat, choosing the playlist, and Tim's driving. I think this is the image that I'm getting. That <laughs> and... is the correct image. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, Foxy, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, and best of luck with all of your shows coming up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So that was a little segment conversation uh, with Tim Valina and Foxy Foe, who are two drag performers from up north in Newcastle. That brings us to the end of Queering the Air for today, unfortunately. My name is Jacob, and thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR. Once again, uh, if you liked what we're doing and you want to support the station, it is our Radiothon month at the moment. So please head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Um, and if you have some spare coins, you know, you've got to keep us on the air somehow. So I would, would very much... Uh, appreciate that now up next is salam radio show it sounds like there's going to be some funky tracks uh happening from uh all over the world so stay on the air for that um but we're going to finish with a song now this one is called love and validation by boys noise and kelsey lou enjoy (laughs) 